0: welcome to bitcoin fixes this where we explore the impact that bitcoin will have in all aspects of society today's guest is samson mao ceo of jan3 we talk about the scaling war days his journey through the bitcoin eco- ecosystem and his various roles at ubisoft Pixomedic, btc china blockstream and his new role at jan3 we also talk about his new company and how he hopes to bring big new countries into the bitcoin fold
1: Samson Mao, how's everything going? It's going good, Jimmy. How are you doing? I'm good. Where in the world are you right now? Uh, Right now, I'm in Canada, West Coast Canada.
0: Okay, all right. So how's the lockdown stuff over there? Everybody talks about how oppressive it is.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, there's some hope. I mean, we're opening Mm -hmm. up gradually. I think you still can't come into Canada unless you're vaxxed, but... Hopefully that will change soon. But overall, you have freedom of movement. You don't have to mask up anymore. But Trudeau is still a useless prick.
0: (laughs) Yeah, he's definitely an interesting guy. And, uh, you know, he's good for Bitcoin, though, because he's like putting us all on the map.
1: (laughs) I I guess you could look at it that way on the bright side, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So Sam, you have uh, one of the more interesting histories in Bitcoin. I, I still remember kind of you popping on my radar in like 2016 with all the scaling wars and stuff like that. But I think it would be good for uh, my audience to sort of like learn where you came from and how you got into Bitcoin, because I actually don't know your Bitcoin origin story.
1: All right. Well, I guess my entry into Bitcoin is by accident. I had started (laughs) reading about Bitcoin in maybe 2011 to 2013. Just like Mm. I used to read a lot of news and I pretty much stopped. But Mm. back then (laughs) you'd see Bitcoin pop up in headlines like dark markets and drugs and whatnot. And I would kind of look at it, but I wasn't that interested in it because I didn't know how it worked. And then Mm. I saw one article, I think it was 2013, that really made it click for me. Which was about Bitcoin mining and how to set up Bitcoin mining. And Mm. prior to that, I kind of just imagined Bitcoin as a a virtual currency, like a game currency or something like that. But Mm. the mining article really, like, really turned on all the gears and lights in my head. So I started trying to set up mining. I created a slush pool account. I, I created a you know, everything you needed to start mining, but it was already too late to do it on uh, a low-powered laptop, right? So I didn't (laughs) mine anything, actually, but I did set it up, and that kind of kicked off the thought process and made me understand, like, okay, this thing is different. It's decentralized. Anybody can participate, and there's nobody under the curtain. There's no one behind the curtain running it. So that Mm. was when I started getting more and more into it. And I guess when I – the time I officially say I was a Bitcoiner – It was 2014, late 2014, when I actually got my first Bitcoin. And then when I joined BTC China, um, one of the biggest crypto exchanges back then in 2015. So maybe Mm. I discredit myself and I I say I came in later than I should (laughs) have. (laughs) But I would say like when you get your first Bitcoin is when you're a Bitcoiner. So it's fair.
0: Mm. Hmm, 2014, huh? Yeah. So uh, how would you end up at BTCC? Because I mean, I don't know if many people that listening to this podcast remember, but it was it was a huge, you know, company. Uh, you know, they had to shut down because of the restrictions in China. But mm-hmm. uh, for a while there, like there, there was a lot of stuff going on in there. How would you end up there?
1: <laughs> yeah, sort of by accident. So I had known Bobby, the CEO, prior, well, like years ago before he was at BTC China and Mm -hmm. I was running my own game company, Pixelmatic. We were just kitty-corner across from each other in Shanghai. So Mm -hmm. I had offered to be an advisor to help him set up a mobile development team to make their mobile apps better. It wasn't working that well at the time. So I just went there a few days a week in the afternoons as an advisor to hang out and help them recruit people. And then... Eventually, there was like a political battle inside the company, and then the COO was ousted. And then Bobby asked me to take over as the new COO. And yeah, from there, it's history. And then, as you mentioned, we kind of got sucked into the the scaling wars because BTC China was a big exchange. And a lot of people today maybe don't understand how impactful BTC China was, but I would say it was as big as, say, Coinbase is today or, you know... Bitfinex or Kraken, but it's definitely a top tier, top level and highly influential back in the day.
0: Yeah, it was definitely a huge exchange and a lot of people forget, but China used to be such a huge market for Bitcoin. And, you know, obviously it's more now known for minor equipment manufacturing, but the exchanges were pretty huge, especially 2013,
1: 2014, 2015. Yeah. So essentially after Gox imploded, all the traders went to BTC China. So mm. overnight, BTC, BTC China became the biggest exchange in the world for a good number of years. And then eventually you had the other exchanges like OKCoin OK and Huobi come up. And then you had like the big three in China that drove most of the Bitcoin trading volume in the world until, mm. you know, we were all shut down by the PBOC. <laughs> And that that and leverage trading took over with
0: uh, with with some of these places. But let, let's go back even further, because because uh, you're a CEO of a gaming company and everything else. Mm-hmm. Like like, what's your background there? Like, what did you like? How did you get into that business? And like, you know, obviously you were in close proximity with uh, with Bobby, so that that's how you got into Bitcoin. But what's the story before that? And what were you doing?
1: So my trade is game development. I've Mm -hmm. been doing game development since 2005, working on Mm -hmm. AAA uh, games like uh, Company Heroes, Dawn of War. These are big RTS titles. And then Mm -hmm. I was at Ubisoft and expanding their market into Asia. So we set up a development studio of about 200 people in Western China. And Mm -hmm. I did a lot of online games. I did a Smurfs game on Facebook. I did mm-hmm. Scott Pilgrim, uh, Xbox title, and uh, Might and Magic: Heroes Kingdoms, uh, a web and mobile title. So, I did. I've been doing games for a long time, and mm. I'm just, I'm just here by accident. I'm, I don't know why <laughs> I don't know why I'm here in Bitcoin, but I'm here in Bitcoin and in games still because Pixelmatic is still running. We're still building um, an MMO game, so. We've been working on this title called Infinite Fleet, and I've been trying to incorporate a lot of blockstream tech into Infinite Fleet. So the game currency is issued on the Liquid sidechain, and Mm. we're creating NFTs for the spaceship so that people can do atomic swaps when they trade game currency for game item.
0: Mm. Well, so going back to the whole game development thing, like there's a lot of different aspects of game development what part were you involved in were you doing that i don't know were you doing project management or like getting the artwork or you know testing what was the aspect that you were most involved in with the games
1: right so yeah there's a lot of disciplines in game development obviously people know Mm -hmm. there's art and then qa Mm -hmm. everyone tries to get Mm -hmm. in at the qa level (laughs) Then there's game design, there's production and engineering, and a lot of supporting Mm -hmm. disciplines. But those are the major ones. Mm -hmm. My entry point was in game balance, which was a subset of design. So Mm. this was at Relic. We had a balance department because we were building a real-time strategy game. It's sort of like like Starcraft, right? You have multiple Mm -hmm. factions, and each faction is fighting against the other faction. So the important thing for a real-time strategy game is every faction has to have a fighting chance. So Mm -hmm. we just say the game is well-balanced. That means I could pick any race in the game, and I should have more or less the same chance to win fighting against Mm -hmm. another race. And that is relatively simple to do when you have three races, like in Starcraft, right? You have uh, Protoss, Mm -hmm. Terran, and Zerg. But for Dawn Mm -hmm. of War, we started with four and then kept expanding to more and more races (laughs) so it gets very very complex but what you're essentially doing is tweaking the units their stats their numbers their damage because dawn of war had physics involved we have to add another dimension of you know density weight and time to return to battle so you can get knocked away as a unit and then you have to run Mm -hmm. back and get back into the fight (laughs) if you're a melee fighter right so this is Mm -hmm. a extra dimension of complexity that say starcraft doesn't have right starcraft they just mm. bunch up shoot or hack at each other and then they die but we have to actually account for physics so it's a very mm. complex balancing act between a lot of different uh, elements and i guess there's a, a similar aspect to that too in bitcoin right you have um, mm-hmm. multiple competing interests in bitcoin from miners to wallets to exchanges and there's a very delicate Balance between everything, and of course the people running the nodes. So everything mm. has to be balanced mm. to work in harmony, just like in a game.
0: Right, and I imagine like the economics there are also important because what the units cost, um, and making sure that that's balanced with and the time to the amount of time it takes for you to produce it and things like that. Those also are part of the balancing equation,
1: or is it not? Yeah, definitely. So there is an economy, but I would say Mm -hmm. it is less impactful in this kind of instance game where you just launch Mm -hmm. it and then you fight the match and then you're done. Mm -hmm. This is actually far more important in online games. So in Mm. even the social games that we built they're persistent Mm -hmm. worlds and you're accumulating money all the time so the smurfs Mm. castle and co these social games might and magic heroes kingdoms these are effectively like you can think of them as an mmo game right you're persisting through Mm -hmm. time and you actually do have to deal with a lot of economics in here (laughs) to deal with things like (laughs) inflation getting towards Uh hyperinflation you have to create sinks for the game uh-huh. currency or else the game currency becomes worthless. You have to price things accordingly or else you know, people don't value them or you know, they can never afford them or they're too cheap. So there's a ton mm. of um, these little knobs you have to deal with and tune an economy. And that's also why I was interested in Bitcoin because you know, for mm-hmm. a couple good couple of years I was creating these online economies. And some of these game economies, they're really hardcore and they hire real world economists. Let's not discuss how well economists usually are. But (laughs) they do hire game economists to run a game economy, much like uh, you you have central banks running real-world nation-state economies. But it's Mm. pretty intense. and. There are just just tons of similarities between gaming and and Bitcoin, I think, at least. Well, and and the real economy, right? Because you you have people like working for certain things.
0: I mean, there was that whole meme of what Chinese gold miner must die or something. Gold farmer, I I forget. (laughs) But yeah, in these virtual world, you get this interaction that you don't necessarily expect as a game developer. And, you know, obviously we have parallels to that in Bitcoin, but but yeah, I, I mean, how do you balance all of that as, as a developer? Do you just sort of like tweak settings like, and sort of change the rules all of a
1: sudden? Are you hard forking your software all the time? Well, basically, a game is centralized, so you can change anything. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You can change the, how much something costs. You can change the rate mm-hmm. of earning. So when you're playing World mm-hmm. of Warcraft and you're killing an uh, like a mob or a monster, mm-hmm. You can get more gold or less gold, and you can also change mm-hmm. other costs, so the money sinks can be changed as well, so how much it costs to repair your armor or to mm-hmm. uh, list an item for trading like all of these things are completely mutable, and that's why mm-hmm. Bitcoin is so interesting because you have a mm-hmm. predefined rule set, and then nobody can change it from there so <laughs> I mean so different things stay the same versus a game and Bitcoin, yeah, so much like. The real-world economy with the central banks, they can change anything. Mm -hmm. The game developer Mm -hmm. can also change anything. And as you said, we're tweaking as much as we can to kind of Mm -hmm. maintain a sense of stability. But there's always this battle against uh, because game currencies historically have been like money printing, right? There's no limit. Mm -hmm. You can kill a billion (laughs) monsters. You can be a gold farmer and kill a billion things or 10 billion things and you'll get more gold and you'll inflate the money supply, right? And that's partly, mm. partly why they don't like gold farmers. Players don't like gold farmers because they mess with the economy. <laughs> but it's the same for the Fed, right? Except for the Fed mm. doesn't have to do anything. They just add a zero mm. and then they're done. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> <laughs> games are more economically sound in some way. There's at least proof of work involved.
0: Yeah, well, I yeah, I, I remember people used to complain. I, I never played World of Warcraft, but there's like camping for a monster yeah. or something like that. They spawn at a certain hour and you're you're there in line with like 40 other players that are waiting to kill that monster or something and you just kill them, take the loot and then go or something like that. It, yes. it's, it's just like kind of crazy because if you spawn them too quickly, I guess you make too much money for the economy and then everything gets more expensive or something like that.
1: Yeah, well, players kind of figure out what the best ROI is, right? And this is like, <laughs> players are always optimizing. Players are not stupid, just mm-hmm. like people are not stupid, mm-hmm. right? You can figure mm-hmm. out like if I kill these monsters, I'm going to be able to work for like an hour a day and get more gold than if I played for eight hours killing this uh, lower priority target, right? So they mm-hmm. they're optimizing, and everyone's optimizing, and then you basically have the best regions to get money, and that's mm-hmm. where you get into fights between players trying to get that mob right they're all trying to mm-hmm. get that thing as soon as it spawns mm, yeah
0: that that's so interesting because in a sense it's uh, it's similar to Bitcoin in the sense that you know ev- everyone is kind of competing except it's it's over you know finding proof of work and it's uh <laughs> you know like it, yeah. it's, it's a different kind of you know, everyone can try take their hack at the monster, uh, basically. Um, yeah. So that's interesting. So you come from almost like an economics and like, you know, balancing game theory kind of background. So what was it like for you to learn about sort of like the game theory behind Bitcoin?
1: I think there was definitely a learning curve. So uh, mm-hmm. I think some people will remember, but I was originally <laughs> way back when, in favor of mm-hmm. bigger blocks, because I thought mm-hmm. it was better that we didn't have high fees so we could encourage the growth of the Bitcoin network. So I kind of fell into that same logical trap that, you know, the uh, Gavin Andreessen, Mike Hearn were pushing, which is it's, it's good for the network. We should make this small change. It's not a big deal, right? It's a mm-hmm. very simple logical trap to fall into and you, you mm-hmm. come in with good well-meaning intentions but actually you're eroding bitcoin's entire value proposition by doing that so mm-hmm. i can understand when people don't fully understand bitcoin because it mm-hmm. a lot of things in bitcoin are incredibly counterintuitive right like the fact that you have to set up a mining operation and you you might be profitable or you might not be profitable depending on if you get a block or not right mm-hmm. and There's just tons of these little (laughs) nuances and intricacies that uh, make Bitcoin what it is. But for most people that don't go down the rabbit hole and try to understand it, they just just fly right over their heads and they won't understand it at all.
0: Mm. Yeah. So you're developing all of these games and you're learning about all of this stuff. How'd you end up starting your own company and what? Was sort of like the motive behind that, like, I assume it's because you like games, but what else is there that attracts you to that industry?
1: Well, I, I'd always wanted to start my own game company. So after I had my stint at Relic, working on triple mm. Games, and after I had my stint at Ubisoft, basically building a new studio from ground up and launching several successful games that were highly, highly profitable and had like tens of millions of users, I thought it was a good time to start my own company, mm. you know. It's the entrepreneurial spirit. You don't want to work for Mm. someone else. You just rather work Mm. for yourself, and you know it's capitalism. (laughs) I'd rather make money for myself, right? (laughs) But yeah, Mm. I, I think it's it's good to do your own thing, and then you can effectively create your own vision. You don't. You can optimize the company in ways that you think are the best. You can cut out inefficiencies. You don't have to you know, have meetings for the sake of meetings and deal with (laughs) all the bureaucratic stuff that you have to deal with in a big, massive public company. So you started this company in China, correct? Yes. 2011, we started it in China and it's uh, actually a Hong Kong entity.
0: Okay. What was the decision behind that? Was it to appeal to the growing gamer base there or was it like for labor costs or what was the reason?
1: Uh, mainly because I was living there. So um, <laughs> you know, uh, that was where where it, it started. And we just mm. created it in Hong Kong because it was uh, easier to do um, business deals and stuff out of Hong Kong than in China.
0: Mm, I see. And that's when you met Bobby because he happened to be like across the hall and uh, and you went to BTCC. Uh,
1: I probably knew him when I was still at Ubisoft. So like Uh pre-2011. We just knew each other from social circles. So Shanghai is a Mm. big party city, and we used to go clubbing.
0: (laughs) So we we just know
1: each other from the club.
0: You and Bobby clubbing like 12, 15 years ago or
1: something like that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that was what you did in Shanghai back then. There's tons of clubs, and the scene was uh, pretty good, pretty happening.
0: Mm. Okay. So you, you get this COO role at BTC China. What was that like as you know, I mean, you, you had a lot of different sort of dynamics, like, like we were saying that there, there was a lot of traders that were on BTCC. And there was, uh, you know, you you guys were like producing poker chips. And like, uh, <laughs> you know, I think you had a mining pool, and you yep. made like the little square coins or something like that. I forget what they were called. But it, it was like minted things. Yeah. I mean, you, you did so many different things for with, with that company. And you know, like, what was I like? Like, it must have been like kind of heady times.
1: Yeah, it was a pretty steep learning curve for me running an exchange mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and learning about Bitcoin more at the same time, and then getting pulled into the, the scaling wars. So I would say it was quite overwhelming at, at that time when I first joined, everything was happening all at once, right? We also had launched the mining pool, I think, In that same year that I joined in 2015. So Mm. it was like one, trying to fix the exchange because the tech stack Mm. was a bit aging Mm -hmm. and there was still a lot of growth. So the company was growing very rapidly. I think when I joined, it was 40, and when I left, it was like 200 something. But Mm -hmm. it's just, there's like so many things going on. And we did a lot of products, interesting products, as you said. Like we did the Mm BTCC Mint, we did a titanium Mm -hmm. Bitcoin coins similar to the Mm -hmm. Cassatius coin so you peel off the hologram Mm -hmm. and then i think because bobby likes poker we made poker chips too so (laughs) uh, the poker chips are also like Cassatius style with the hologram and Mm -hmm. private key in it and Mm. the probably the coolest thing we did was the the titanium block so Mm -hmm. it was a big square chunk of titanium pretty heavy if you hold it in your hand on retrospect Mm -hmm. we should have done it with uh, tungsten but you know, mm. hindsight is twenty twenty, but <laughs> this block effectively the private key in it had an entire Bitcoin block reward, so it was like mm. twenty five BTC in one big titanium chunk. So that was pretty badass. I think that was the my favorite product that we made. My favorite physical product that we made.
0: Yeah, I think I remember thinking, oh, man, I kind of want to buy one. But there was like two BTC premium or something like that. So I was (laughs) like, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, And Bobby did invite me to China at some point. But I was like, I I never really had a chance to go. And now I might never go because the place is freaking closed. Yeah. Yeah, So that whole thing was interesting because obviously you were pretty prominent in the scaling wars, Um, I I think, due to your trolling skills, like can you describe like how you got involved in the debate and why your name sort of
1: became synonymous with the small blocker size, I guess? Hmm. So it was because BTC China had the mining pool. And I think at our mm-hmm. peak, we we're like 18%. So when those guys were trying to convince all the miners to run their software, so when I say those guys, I mean Gavin and Mike Hearn, they were contacting mm-hmm. all the big pools. And, and back then, the hash rate was far more centralized. So you only had, Mm -hmm. I don't know, like eight or nine big pools that really Mm -hmm. were dominating the scene. So they just had to call up eight or nine pools and say, hey, that's time to upgrade. But that was Mm -hmm. really how I got pulled into it because I was doing the day-to-day running the the operations of the exchange and pool. They were the ones that Mm -hmm. reached out and said, hey, we we need to jump on a call. I think it was on Skype. And they're explaining Mm -hmm. like, okay, we're um, Bitcoin developers and it's time to upgrade to Bitcoin XT. (laughs) uh, (laughs) you know you know the story from there but i think i gained a lot of prominence because i was the only c-level executive at a big bitcoin company that was speaking out against it Mm. the effort to change the bitcoin consensus rules so at the Mm. time you know you had brian armstrong with coinbase Uh, coinbase was not as powerful as it as it is today and impactful of course but i mean you literally Mm. had every single bitcoin company trying to quote, unquote, scale Bitcoin. And I was the only C-level exec that would say, no, this is a bad idea. And I don't Mm. think Adam counts because, you know, obviously he's the CEO (laughs) of Blockstream and Blockstream is the the company behind it. So I was the only voice aside from developers and Blockstream Uh that was saying, maybe this is not a good idea.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you obviously like grew your following on Twitter as a result of that whole thing. And I remember some of your trolliest tweets. They were fantastic. I think people were like cheering them on and stuff.
1: Yeah. The secret was we had a lot of long meetings at BTC China. So I would Uh just try to pass the time on Twitter. (laughs) 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 And most of the trolling was directed at Brian Armstrong because... Mm. he just uh walks right into stuff you know like he had that mm. powerpoint deck comparing bitcoin to a web browser and saying it's good to have many different implementations of the software and then you have like uh, internet explorer and chrome and firefox and yeah mm. he's just there's tons of great stuff that he just sets up and then you just hit it <laughs> <laughs> yeah so
0: you did a lot of that but you know, later on, Bobby signs the two X agreement. Can you tell us, like, the inside story of what what the heck happened there? Because I think for a lot of us that were watching, it was kind of a shock to see his name on that on that like DCG led agreement, and you know, like other people like Voorhees and Wences, and obviously people like Brian Armstrong signed mm-hmm. it and stuff. What was going on with that whole thing? Because from the outside, it was just like, wait, these guys are meeting behind closed doors and made
1: some mm-hmm. agreement. It's like, what What the heck? Why, why are we left out of it, like the users? Right. So, the during the bulk of the scaling war, I was the main voice mm-hmm. from BTC China <laughs> handling it, right? Mm-hmm. So, that was mm-hmm. why the messaging was very consistent and on point. And then mm-hmm. at sometime I left, and it turns out, like, uh, Bobby didn't agree with me. So, <laughs> I think he did, a, <laughs> he did a 180 later on. And mm-hmm. I think you were on that cruise with Roger Ver. You remember that one where yeah. you, were, you, mm-hmm. you had a debate mm-hmm. with him and whatnot. But Bobby was there too, right? And that was mm-hmm. when Bobby was talking, like, maybe Bitcoin Cash is the real Bitcoin. Do you recall mm-hmm.
0: that? I remember he said, they're both my children and, you know, Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash,
1: something like that. He he gave some diplomatic BS answer. But yeah, yeah. but I mean, he was definitely supporting the forks and Yeah, uh, I guess we don't see eye to eye. So
0: that was after you left, I guess. When when did you leave?
1: I I don't remember the time. I left in early what year was that?
0: 2017. Okay, so you left for Blockstream in 2017.
1: Yes. Okay. I think that was around uh, the time he came Yeah, out.
0: and why, why did you leave to go to Blockstream? Was it just like a better role or something, something else? Or did you want to move or what, what was the deal?
1: Well, I was planning to move back to Canada. So mm. you know, Blockstream's team is mostly in North America and mm. you know, all over the place. But yeah, I, I just planned to move back for family reasons. And mm. it, I also wanted to do something more for the Bitcoin protocol. So I decided mm. you know, maybe now is a good time to join Blockstream. And mm. I think Blockstream needed my help at the time too. I don't know if you remember mm. um, Blockstream before me, but it was a different, <laughs> a different beast, I would say. And then mm. it's a, it looks a lot more like a, a company these days and it's quite successful, I would say. So mm. I think they needed that business and marketing finesse that I brought to the table.
0: Mm. And so you leave early in 2017 and Bobby sort of like turns more towards the 2X, you know, big blocker side. Like, was that like kind of shocking to you? I, I imagine you have been communicating with them before
1: um well it was really busy like the scaling stuff was kind of my department so i just handled Mm -hmm. it mostly on my own Mm. and then maybe after i left he started getting into it and then he discovered vcash and i I don't know (laughs) but um he kind of cut bits and pieces of it but i guess maybe i never really talked to him at length about it because there were just so many other things to discuss like running a company there's tons of other Mm. things right the Mm. the scaling war was kind of a you know a side thing but Mm yeah, I guess maybe we didn't sync up enough. And then after I left, he kind of tried to figure it out on his own, and maybe he figured it out the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> it was
0: interesting, because like, even his brother didn't agree with him. So it was like, what's going on?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, Charlie was always on the right side and understood how things worked. But yeah, I mean, it is what it is. Like both Charlie and I had tried to talk to him and we were not successful. So he kind of went down that route, but I mean, it doesn't matter now. Right. Because you know, mm-hmm. it, it resolved itself and um, <laughs> it's all good. Well, I'm,
0: just, I'm just trying to figure out what, what happened behind the scenes. Cause I, I, I think other than maybe the block size war the book, like a lot of it just felt like it, ju- it just sort of happened behind closed doors somewhere. it's mm-hmm. like, okay, who like, Did, uh, you know, Peter Smith like go threaten Bobby Lee or something like there's got to be some salacious story or something because it it just seemed like such a turnaround for the company because you you were representing them and it was okay. Yeah, they're they're the one like rational company in China, like uh, all the other companies in China seem to be, you know. Trying to go along with whatever DCG was saying.
1: Well, it's but, more about you know, the. I would say it's more the the companies in China were trying to go along with what Jihan, the mm-hmm. former co CEO of Bitmain, mm-hmm. was saying because mm-hmm. he he wielded a ton of power, and I would say mm-hmm. he he was more influential than Brian Armstrong back then because he mm-hmm. made most of the ASICs. Right, the S nine was a dominant mm-hmm. miner. He had mm-hmm. most of the farms, and he had most of the pools. So, Mm. he wielded a ton of influence and power back then. And all the companies in China kind of tried to fall in line with him not to piss him off, but I I didn't really care. (laughs) (laughs) But I would say maybe Bobby got pressured by Barry Silbert from DCG because DCG was also Mm. an investor in BTC China, Mm. albeit small, but still an investor. So, Mm. probably trying to be diplomatic and cordial i mean that's the whole crux of the scaling thing right like how can you not mm. agree to the compromise are you not a rational mm. person like why can't you mm. compromise right <laughs> so mm. he probably fell into that trap and said okay barry i'll compromise and maybe it's a good thing mm. we should stop fighting and do this compromise that's mm. my guess but I, I don't know the exact details because i was cut out <laughs> from a lot of that stuff you remember i was um, i was blocked from one of the New York meetings for the New York agreement.
0: <laughs> that's right. That's right. And all of that happened, I guess, behind your back too. Yeah. But yeah, obviously, like 2017 was very eventful and you were sort of in the middle of it, you know, being, you know, I guess COO or CSO of Blockstream. CSO. Uh, what, what, CSO, right. So what was your tenure at Blockstream like? What do you remember about it that, or what,
1: what are you proud of, I guess, uh, having done there? So I would say a couple of things. One was after I joined, well, so Blockstream had always wanted to get into mining, but I actually went to Adam and we went to the board to present a concrete plan of how to get into mining. So we bought some containers from Bitfury shortly after I joined and we started mining. And then mm. I went to Montreal and I secured the lease and power purchase agreement, uh, we call it a PPA, with Hydro-Quebec to get cheap electricity in, in mm. Canada. And then we started building our own facility. But coming off of the block size wars, it was a really important thing to decentralize the mining out of China, right? And I think nowadays, you look back in hindsight and you can see, okay, that was a very important thing to start doing. Because if everyone mm. w- just stayed in China, then it would have been much more disruptive when the, when the Chinese government banned mining. Mm. But starting the mining was probably an, an important thing for Blockstream because we needed a revenue stream. The software side mm. was not a revenue generator. So having mm. two pieces of the company, one doing R&D software products and one doing um, a profitable mining operation was very key for success. The mm. other thing that I think I was proud of doing was launching the Liquid network. So mm. Blockstream had announced this and was um, getting companies to join. And mm. this was in 2015. And I think in New York, I was one of the first companies to join. So BDC China, Bitfinex, uh, Kraken, and a couple others were the first ones to sign up for Liquid. But it mm it was not really going anywhere. So <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, they didn't ship out the functionaries. They didn't get uh, exchanges to integrate. And that was one of the first projects I took on when I joined, which was actually launching the thing and getting the boxes out to all the different exchanges and getting all the exchanges to integrate. And I'm really grateful for Apollo and the Bifnex team because they were one of the first big exchanges to actually support Liquid. And I think the degree of adoption we have today is largely thanks to their foresight and their ability to execute but yeah so my I guess mining and liquid are my two big things at blockstream and the other parts are just building up the bd team building up the marketing team making our comms and social media a lot better than they were back then
0: mm. okay so um You've also worked on this El Salvador bond thing. Can you tell us more about your involvement and everything else that you've been doing with respect to that?
1: Yeah, so in El Salvador, it was largely engaging with them about Bitcoin prior to the the law. So we were advising them on Bitcoin security, cold storage, a number of Bitcoin-related topics. And in the course of that, because there was this volcano bond meme uh, created by Max Kaiser and Alistair Milne. So we, me and my team at Blockstream, we put together a pitch and said, if you really wanted to do this thing and make the meme a reality, <laughs> here's what you would do. And here are two options for a volcano bond. So we created two proposals and a bunch of modeling around those two proposals. The first proposal was the the bond as you know it right now, which is a billion dollar bond, 6.5% coupon. Half of it goes to buy Bitcoin and half of it goes to mining. And the second hmm. proposal was a future flow model. So effectively creating an entity to do mining and share profits from that mining operation with the holders of that, that bond. But the two things were basically Mm. potentially what you could brand it as a a volcano bond offering. And Mm. they got really busy with the launch of Chivo after the law passed, and discussions kind of went quiet for a while. But then after Chivo was launched, we resumed discussions on the different offerings. And then um, I went to El Salvador, and then we decided that they were going to do it. And then I announced it with the president, Nayib Bukele, on stage at Field the Bit. And mm. now we're just waiting for the all the pieces <laughs> to come into play and the new digital securities laws to pass so that they can actually issue their bond.
0: Mm. Well, so where is it in that process? Uh, and when can we expect an El Salvador volcano bond to come to market?
1: Well, it's really up to them. They were very busy with the, the gang violence in the last few months, and I, I believe that was also why the president didn't make it to Miami. But mm. uh, it seems that situation's under control now, and they might have fixed the situation for good. So mm-hmm. I've heard that they're turning their attention back towards the economy. So potentially, we could see the laws going to Congress, the new digital security laws going to Congress. And there potentially may be other laws. The president has said there's 52 new laws that they're working on for things like mm. citizenship, permanent residence, and you know, company incorporation for Bitcoin City. Basically, everything mm. you would need to do business in El Salvador and also to do the bonds. But these will go to Congress. And then if they pass, then probably in two to four weeks after that, you could see the, the bond offering launched on the Bitfinex tech platform.
0: Mm. Oh, wow. So, it would be directly on Bitfinex that you could buy a bond or can you buy it elsewhere or is it just Bitfinex?
1: It would be just Bitfinex.
0: Okay. Wow. So, that that would be interesting. So, you, you'd have to get a Bitfinex account in order to participate in the bond. And I, am, I think US citizen or US IPs can't access uh, Bitfinex if yeah. I'm not mistaken.
1: That's right. So, they... They block a number of um, people from different countries. I think the U.S. is one. I believe Canada mm. is another. But there's there are going to be people that cannot access the offering, mm. which is unfortunate. But that's just the the world we live in today. Mm. And uh, would bond investors be able to
0: get on in on this, or like what what are the restrictions there?
1: Well, as long as they could create an account and go through the mm. KYC process, then they'll be able mm. to do it. The question is. Are the traditional bond investors going to do that? And I, I don't think mm. so. I think the first buyers of the bond are likely going to be big Bitcoin whales or you know crypto people that want mm-hmm. to support El Salvador or get citizenship. Maybe some forward-thinking hedge funds that are agile might be able to do it. Mm-hmm. But the old-school institutional bond investors probably are not going to be able to do this. And that doesn't preclude them not being able to do it in the future because El Salvador could do another offering somewhere else that would be underwritten Mm -hmm. like a traditional bond and that could be opened up to traditional bond investors.
0: Well, so when you're releasing a bond, don't you do some sort of like a roadshow, kind of like a pre-IPO kind of thing, but like telling the people that would buy it, hey, hear, hear the prospects and stuff like that? Yeah, or is definitely. It, does that not
1: not No, okay. no, they'll, they'll need to, do, I don't know if it's going to be a real roadshow, but they'll need to mm-hmm. publish their offering doc. It's called a key information document under the mm-hmm. last draft of the law that I saw. So it, it's like a mini mm-hmm. prospectus, but it would detail the exact specifics of the bond offering because what we showed on stage was the well, the proposal, but they need to first have the law passed and then write the prospectus mm. to comply with the law and the regulations, right? That's why mm. there's no prospectus now, and people are always asking on Twitter, like, "Where are the details?" But until the mm. law is passed, you don't know in what state the law will come out looking like, right? There might be some mm-hmm. Congress people that say, "Well, we should change A and B, and we should add C," and then of course mm-hmm. the offering would be different. So there's a clear order of operations here, which is law has to go to Congress; they need to discuss it, and Maybe change it, pass it. Then the uh, Ministry of Finance, which is the issuing entity, would complete the prospectus, and they're offering doc and marketing materials and whatnot, and then socialize that with the public. And then there'd be a period of time where people would be able to um, sign up on Bitfinex, potentially, and then buy the bond tokens.
0: Hmm. Wow. Okay. And uh, and is it still a 6.5% coupon? And then like, you get some upside on the Bitcoin that's being bought by issuing the bond?
1: Yeah. So the original design was a 6.5% coupon, uh, a 10-year bond. You get the principal back mm-hmm. at the end of the 10 years. But the interesting twist is after five years, so 500 million will be used to buy Bitcoin. After the five-year mm-hmm. mark, They will sell off some of the Bitcoin to recoup their initial $500 million investment. Mm -hmm. Then they'll share 50 50 all Bitcoin upside. So they'll keep selling it Mm. over every quarter and splitting Mm -hmm. that upside with the holders of the bond. Now, Mm. El Salvador doesn't need to sell their Bitcoin. They could just mark to market. So they can Mm -hmm. say, We're going to sell this and distribute Mm -hmm. to you, and we're going to quote unquote sell this and then we'll keep it in our cold storage wallet after that period. Mm -hmm. So I think that would be the better thing to do so that they end up with another chest of Bitcoin at the end of the 10 year period, which could potentially Mm. be used to pay off all their other debt. (laughs) (laughs) So that's an interesting thing that could come to pass, but it's still 10 years from now. So we'll see what happens. But I think with Bitcoin price moving the way it usually moves, it's not impossible to say that the a quarter of the the Bitcoin proceeds from the first bond might pay off all their debt.
0: Hmm. How much debt do they have, or or are you just talking about the debt from this particular bond?
1: I was talking about all their debt. I think they're at uh, <laughs> eleven billion or something like that.
0: Uh, oh wow! So a one billion dollar bond, five hundred million dollar buy. Yeah, that that could definitely do it. Uh, depending on you know how how Bitcoin performs, obviously yeah but they Um, do want to do they owe that money to
1: it's like traditional bond investors
0: i see okay and what did they want to do sorry
1: they probably want to do more bonds than just this first one Mm. so the first Mm -hmm. bond here is uh, was planned for doing um geothermal bitcoin mining um Mm -hmm. but potentially they could do additional bonds to raise the capital to build bitcoin city itself
0: hmm I see. And what would that be backed by? Like the
1: infrastructure
0: there or utilities there or something mm, like that?
1: There's a number of ways you could do it. I mean, you could create a corporation like the Dubai Development Corporation and they could that could share revenues. Um, you could do it mm-hmm. based on land. So mm-hmm. land appreciation. Um, but I, I think it's still early and At least I haven't really discussed it with them. I don't know what exactly (laughs) they're thinking about doing a Bitcoin city bond, but um, there's a number Mm. of ways to tackle it, I think.
0: Mm. Okay. So you've gotten some experience sort of helping a sovereign state get into Bitcoin or use Bitcoin in a way that makes sense for them. You're doing that for other countries with your new company. Can you tell us more about it?
1: Yeah, so I left Blockstream in March, and then Mm. I announced my new company, Jan3, at the Bitcoin 2022 conference in Miami. So Mm. Jan3 is meant to accelerate hyper-Bitcoinization. So that's, uh, obviously, you can tell it's a pretty broad mandate. Mm. Part of that mandate will be helping nation states uh, onboard. So if they want to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender, we can advise them on that. If they want to build some infrastructure projects that use bitcoin we could help them with that as well but yeah jan3 is here to help change the world the mm. other part would be we want to encourage more people to use bitcoin so we'll be mm. so jan3 will take over the aqua wallet from blockstream and i plan to mm. invest a lot more resources into aqua To make it
0: is that the successor to Green Wallet or something else?
1: I don't know if it's a successor, but it's definitely a (laughs) a cousin or brother or sister (laughs) to Green. Uh Aqua was always meant to be an easier to use wallet that your grandma or grandpa could use. So Mm. it reduces a lot of the complexity, and it it shows like liquid assets and Bitcoin in one view, so you don't have to like toggle Mm. between different wallets. And yeah, like I would like to add lightning to it. I would like to uh, add more support for liquid NFTs to it. But hmm. there's a ton of things I want to do with that. But I think the most important thing is to try to make a really accessible wallet that people can use from anywhere. Maybe we'll focus on LATAM.
0: Hmm. Well, so let's talk about some of these countries that you are starting to have influence over. Um, Can you tell us about, I think it was uh, one of the the islands in the Azores or something, and then Panama, I think it was? Yeah.
1: Well, Panama did it on their own, (laughs) or they're doing it (laughs) on their own. So this is the cool thing. A lot of these things are happening, and I'm not involved at all, which is great, Mm. because my time is limited. But we've seen Panama is almost at the stage of implementing a Cryptocurrency law, but Mm -hmm. it is mainly focused on Bitcoin. But they're opening the door Mm -hmm. to other things as Mm -hmm. well. Whether you think it's good or bad, you can look at it from a number of different angles. And then you have the Central African Republic that just 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 did Bitcoin Mm -hmm. as legal tender, so that's a done deal. But Mm -hmm. the cool thing is, uh, countries are starting to do it on their own, just figuring Mm -hmm. things out by themselves. So it's really great. The few that I announced at Bitcoin 2022 were Madeira. It's a autonomous mm-hmm. region of Portugal. So, the president there, uh, Miguel Albuquerque, he is adopting Bitcoin. So they didn't make Bitcoin legal tender. There is no cap mm-hmm. gains, so they will try mm-hmm. to embrace Bitcoin and adopt it. So potentially rolling out payments for government services using Bitcoin or other municipal services, much mm-hmm. in the in the same vein as Lugano in Switzerland. So mm. you know, they 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 say that they did Bitcoin de facto legal tender because, as you know, in Switzerland, there's no cap gains, right? So Mm -hmm. if the government is accepting Bitcoin for all payments and they're encouraging merchants to use it in the city, then it's almost as if it were legal tender, right? And if you think about it, it it doesn't really matter. The key is that countries are adopting Bitcoin because even in in El Salvador, even though it is Bitcoin legal tender, they're not enforcing that. So it's more like Mm. the Bitcoin law is an endorsement, an encouragement to use Bitcoin rather than a, a firm rule, right? Because technically mm. legal tender means you must accept it and it should be enforced, mm-hmm. but it's not. So I think any region adopting Bitcoin, either doing it as legal tender, de facto legal tender, or just eliminating cap gains and encouraging use is about the same. Mm. So that that's Madeira. And then we also had Prospera. It's a... Autonomous, semi-autonomous region of Honduras. So Mm. you're familiar with the free private cities uh, movement, right?
0: I think so. Yeah. Can you describe it for my audience, though?
1: (laughs) It's just a a plan to create private cities, effectively, that are governed on their Mm. own and largely autonomous. So Prospera is effectively a special economic region in Honduras. And they're able to create their own laws. The only thing is they have to follow Honduran criminal law. But every other body of law, they can create their own. And that is exactly what they've done. So they actually did make Bitcoin legal tender in Prospera. So you have a tiny toehold in Honduras. And maybe Mm -hmm. one day, all of Honduras could potentially embrace Bitcoin. But it's a start. And then in Europe, you have Madeira. Mm. An autonomous region of Portugal that is uh, a toehold into the EU. So these are both starting points. And of course, like uh, Jan 3 and myself, we're working with people in Mexico, Ricardo Salinas uh, in Deer Campus to see if we can get Mexico to adopt Bitcoin and a number of other countries. But it's largely driven by Bitcoiners on the ground in these countries. And we're just uh, helping out as we can.
0: Mm. Well, so what's your role? How do you, so say, you know, I doubt it, but say somebody from Costa Rica or something is listening to the, this podcast, what services do you offer to help them, you know, adopt Bitcoin? I guess.
1: Well, I guess it's going to be tailor made to every region. So, like in the example of Madeira, we can work directly with the government to integrate payments, but it really depends on what they want. If they just want advice on cold storage, then we can become a consultant effectively but there's no like menu of services that we offer it's more about uh, we're, we're here to help and we're mm-hmm. not looking for money like jan 3 has raised capital already we should be good for a number of years we'll work on our own products like aqua and potentially others that will generate revenue mm-hmm. but the nation state stuff it's more about helping them and advising them like take el salvador mm-hmm. for example when i was mm-hmm. helping them from blockstream like there was no commercial agreement. There's no payment. We're just here to help and answer questions mm. and give them ideas and work together. Mm.
0: Wow, very interesting. So you raise some money, you have capital. What's your long-term vision for this company?
1: Well, I think the goal is to accelerate hyperbitcoinization. So the first step would be to build up Aqua and then down the road, we'll we'll see what opportunities present themselves. But I've got a number of ideas um, that I've been kicking around for a while that could potentially help decentralize Bitcoin, augment Bitcoin, and get it into the hands of more people around the world.
0: Hmm. Okay, well that's uh, that's very interesting. Sounds like you've got a lot on your plate. You're probably one of the busiest people. Where can people find you? Where can people contact you?
1: Sure. So, my Twitter is at Excellion, E-X-C-E-L-L-I-O-N. And then if you want to follow Gen3, it's at Three Com. Gen3's website will be at Gen3, the number three, dot com. But there's nothing there. It's just a placeholder image. I've been too busy with the, the corporate structure and everything else to bother with the website. But that is there. Oh. And if you want to reach out to talk nation state adoption you can send an email to coffee at jan3.com coffee huh
0: yes (laughs) yeah you do you do enjoy your coffee well thanks for coming on and describing to us a lot of this stuff it's kind of like you know trip down memory lane a little bit
1: yeah it's been fun jimmy and i'm sure i'll see you many times this year (laughs) (laughs) definitely right
0: yeah probably and uh and some other places sure
1: yeah, and you're doing a class in El Salvador,
0: right? That's right. That's right. And that that will be over the summer. And uh, Stacey is organizing a lot of it, so grateful to her. And if you're a developer in El Salvador, you should apply.
1: Yeah, I think we've committed to sponsor some of it. So huh. uh, if I'm awesome. if I'm there, I'll definitely try to I'll try to go to El Salvador while you're there. It'd be good to hang out in the motherland <laughs> <laughs> and Bitcoin motherland. Sure. Yes. All right. All right. Thanks, Samson. Thanks, Jimmy.
0: Unchained Capital is the sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I am excited for what they are building. If you need multi-state collaborative custody or a Bitcoin-native financial services partner, learn more at unchained.com. Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Samson Mao, CEO of JAN3. We talk about the scaling war days, his journey through the Bitcoin ecosystem and his various roles at Ubisoft, Pixomatic, BTC China, Blockstream and his new role at JAN3. We also talk about his new company and how he hopes to bring big, new countries into the Bitcoin fold.